I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. Today, we're joined by Cameron McCord, investor, startup operator, and former Navy officer. Cameron, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thank you, Zoe. And, and thank you, Grant, for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. So Cameron, I know that your interest in geopolitics goes back a long time. Can you tell us a little bit about how you first became interested in foreign policy and national security issues? Absolutely. So for me, this is definitely a family affair. My passion for foreign policy is definitely very closely coupled with my decision to join the Navy, which I think was set in motion long before I even existed by the desire to uh, explore by my grandfather, who was escaping a different, uh, difficult childhood and was dreaming of something much more. So put simply, my grandpa is my hero. When he turned 18, the year was 1941. And as was said, the eyes of the world were upon him. He, like so many at his time, decided to do his part. He enrolled in the, the Naval Academy during the height of World War II. His naval career, put simply, was the stuff of movies. He stood on the deck of the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay while the instruments of surrender were signed. He would go on to fly over 16 aircraft and at one point held the record for the longest unrefueled flight in history. He later commanded a covert operation called Operation Deep Freeze, which had him landing planes on ice and snow and spending months in Antarctica. Carrying that forward a little bit, my mother was a a Navy brat. She grew up a little bit of everywhere, had moved 16 times by the age she was 17. She met my father in Washington, D.C. They were both drawn to public service. My dad was a young attorney at the Department of Justice, and my mom had just completed graduate work at Georgetown. They'd settled down in Springfield, Virginia, a D.C. suburb where I grew up. My dad forwent big law salaries to instead serve as a government attorney for his career, and my mom taught high school students. So I grew up looking at all of that, and I've been very fortunate now to kind of wear several different hats that I believe are in furtherance of sort of that central theme that I think my family instilled in me, which has become using technology to improve people's lives and bolster security, I think, in a, in a very macro sense. What drew you to the submarine specifically? So my father was a submariner, and people cannot see this at home, but I'm a rather large gentleman. I'm like six six, and he was like, "Do not, do not, do not do this." So what made you decide, like, ah, I want to be in a metal tube under the sea? Yeah, it's funny. Um, for the audience listening, I'm about five ten, which is perfect submarine size. My older brother. Brendan was a, a submarine officer as well. He's about 6'4", so a very different fate for, for him. Really joining the submarine community, you know, I wanted to follow, you know, in kind of the family footsteps um, and join the Navy in particular. I always just grew up very passionate about math and science and physics. And so kind of a natural convergence of those two worlds, like how can I practice engineering and, and science? And then also how can I serve? The submarine, I think, community kind of resounds as the most technical sort of manifestation of of that type of public service. I studied physics and nuclear engineering, so got to like proudly say that I, you know, used my 
degree after graduating. I also think, you know, I guess one one simpler answer to that question would be uh, read uh, the book Blind Man's Bluff when I was in eighth grade and was just absolutely fascinated by sort of the older Cold War era, you know, submarine tales. And then realizing through the proximity to the Navy and my family that submarines were still, you know, doing very, very important missions. It's known as the silent service. So a lot of that doesn't get broadcast publicly, but still, you know, incredibly relevant to sort of our national, rather international geopolitical position. And that kind of married very well with the, the love of, uh, of foreign policy. I am somebody who has definitely never been on a submarine. And I have, I think, very, you know, sort of theatrical understandings of, of like what it entails. So can you tell us like, what is like the best and worst part about spending time on a sub? Take yourself back to when the pandemic was at its worst. And every day was a little bit of Groundhog's Day. You'd wake up, you'd stay inside your apartment, go to the kitchen, you know, go to the bathroom, go to whatever. That's kind of what sort of the persistent life being on a submarine is like. Your whole world literally is contained in, you know, about 300 feet of space. And so you don't get to go, you know, do other things. And that obviously has its, its hardship. So I think on the worst side, that sort of confinement and just having the same thing kind of over and over again. I always say, and there's studies in this, you know, humans evolve to sort of react and make memories based off of stimuli that are, that are very different. And when everything's kind of the same, quite literally your perception and of passage of time kind of gets warped and skewed. And that gets really hard. Submarines don't intentionally don't transmit really anything when they're doing covert operations. People don't appreciate you can go 60, 70, 80 days really without any communication from friends, family, loved ones. I would always say for Christmas, we would get like, I got a Christmas tweet. You're very bandwidth constrained. So you get like 140 characters, you know, it's like, Hey, everyone's safe, family, good, love you. You know, like that type of stuff is really all you can get. I think on the flip side, the best part, and, and this might be a little cliche, but was the people. And kind of given that f- the former point, you have extreme proximity with the people that you're around. And I always loved the fact that the military in general, and then the Navy as a subset of the military, is just literally a cross-section of America. And so that's all of the virtues, all of the flaws, all of the quirks and sort of chaos that exists in our country. Um, and the chance to like get to know those people, what makes them tick by necessity, like understanding sort of their values and their character at an extremely deep level because you are with them all the time um, is something that I think was like was was really fulfilling that I that I take away from that experience. How did your time in the military, but also on the hill, sort of change the way you thought about that connection between tech and government? As I feel like both the hill and the military really struggle with the cutting edge and like really advancing tech at the low level, at the high level, they're like right there. But at the low level, it feels like everything takes nine times as long. Was lucky to serve in two extremely different positions in the Navy. One obviously being operationally, you know, deployed on a a submarine, spending 484 days, not that I was counting, underwater, cumulatively, and then very, very separately 
serving on Capitol Hill. I worked sort of in emerging technology policy, particularly for the House Armed Services Committee. So kind of, as people often say, you know, tip of the spear in the sense of the submarine community being very sort of narrowly focused on a mission set, and then being a mile wide, mid an inch deep sort of in, in Congress. And I think I, it, it gives you a, a special appreciation. The submarine community in particular is one of the more, I think, technologically advanced, but still was struggling to adopt kind of modern technology. Towards my tail end there, I was, I think no pun intended, starting to make waves and getting increasing confidence and sort of working up the chain of command, so to speak, and trying to find ways to adopt better technology. One of the things I focused on was trying to operationalize machine learning for acoustics. I had learned about that in, in undergrad and had some practical you know, application time and friends that were using this for anything from high-frequency trading and had other friends that were working you know, the early days of, of a SoundCloud. Um, and so just thinking about like how you could apply that capability, but was met with, frankly, put a lot of resistance when I was on the submarine. Really interesting to then you know, fast forward a year or two to working on the Hill, where the job description for me was essentially to be sort of a conduit and an information broker between senior members of Congress, staffers, DOD officials, and then kind of the third area of that triangle was commercial technology and the venture capital community, all with the, the central premise of finding ways to to fix a lot of those problems that you're, you're referring to, Grant, um, in terms of how do you get commercial technology transitioned and, and adopted and scaled within the department at the pace of relevance. Where do you feel like you got the most enthusiasm and also the most resistance to some of these ideas on the Hill? Was it about domain of technology or area of the, go- of the government that it was affecting? Or was it more to do with like who's sitting around the table and who's on the House Armed Services Committee? Like where, I, I guess, where do you feel like you saw points of like, oh, here's where we can make a lot of progress and oh, like here's going to be a huge sticking point or this is too much of a hill to try to climb right now? I think I'd think about it probably in like two categories. The first is like what I always refer to as like an impedance mismatch culturally between the department and kind of commercial industry. Most of that manifests itself in terms of like risk appetite. It's just very, very different, particularly in the startup venture capital community. It's all about seeking out and creating a portfolio, literally, of risk. And you often are rewarded for taking lots of risk. And that flip over back to sort of the hill and its oversight capacity of of DOD. There's just much more of a culture of sort of managing risk, which is like, that's what I would have considered one of the central tenets of like what I did as a naval officer was appropriately understanding and then decreasing risk. And so I think Part of that is there's just really this impedance mismatch still exists. It's something that's very hard to fix. And it's just speaking different languages in terms of understanding that, you know, within the department and in Congress, really, to this day, there's not a lot of reward for taking risks. The opposite, you, you just stand the, the risk of something not, not working and getting fired or, or getting, you know, demoted. And that's very different sort of in, in the kind of other community. And I think that manifested itself broadly in something I became very focused on, which was helping DOD officials and 
Congress understand how private capital markets worked and how venture capital and venture investing worked, all the way from sort of what is the power law and like how do people think about creating portfolios of investments and, and how that works. I think the second, I'll touch on this one more briefly, I think the second category is more philosophical or, or ideological, perhaps, and that is, you know, when and how should these technology areas be implemented and transitioned ultimately to the warfighter. Um, sort of main area that manifested itself was in sort of operationalizing AI. And that came down to both like understanding what is what is AI and like what does that mean practically speaking? And then what is the right answer in terms of how it should be used, you know, operationally and in, in combat zones or in what sort of uh, different types of ways. And so really interesting to be a part of that conversation sort of early and, and often. So you mentioned trying to help policymakers on the Hill and, you know, folks in the military, DOD, better understand private capital markets, how venture capital works. I think arguably, in lots of ways, venture capital does help to accelerate innovation that's happening in the defense tech space or national security. But at the same time, there are characteristics of venture capital that I would think are sometimes mismatched with the aims and objectives and public benefits that we would hope to have for technology that ultimately serves the federal federal government. For example, like venture capital is looking for returns on a certain time scale and time frame that may be mismatched with how long it takes to actually develop breakthrough, game-changing, hardware-based tech that is often needed for the military. So I would love to hear more about how you think about like where venture capital is the right type of gasoline or the right type of fuel for innovation in the defense space and where you would think to yourself like this is really important to invest in but like venture capital is not the right instrument. And how do we know the difference? I think the be- yeah, the best way to answer it I think is exactly the point that you sort of ended on which is how do you know the difference? And if I were to categorically describe, I think, like the challenge at hand in this defense innovation ecosystem with private venture capital and and the DoD, it is that like we still have not been able to really accurately identify that difference and then communicate it sort of both, you know, both ways. So I think kind of how I think I think about it, and I think a lot of the conversations that were happening on the Hill and sort of still do happen is, you know, if you think about the $800 billion roughly Defense Department budget, and a huge portion of that, approximately $200 billion in broadly, you know, research and technology development areas. When you think about the private capital markets that are investing in technology that has applicability to the DoD in some way, shape, or form, you know, really, and there's there's thousands of different ways to to crunch these numbers and, and people will debate, but really for the first time, a lot of a lot of people would agree that. You know, the last two or three years was the first time that that those two lines sort of crossed one another, and that more money is being invested in private capital markets that has some sort of very broad definition of dual use applicability. And so, I think as a policymaker, when you step back and you look at this global geopolitical picture, that when I was there, this was not the case, but but obviously with what's going on with Russia and Ukraine and sort of continuing activity by the Chinese Communist Party. Like you have to say, how do I leverage this amount of capital? I mean, kind of make sense of it. 
So I think that's like a very high level piece to it. I do think the biggest problem and why people, why the term, you know, valley of death has become a thing. And for those kind of not, you know, not familiar, it's basically the notion that it's very easy to get sort of a experimentation program or a pilot program or a short, small contract if you're a commercial company with with the DoD. But what's much more difficult is sort of getting through this valley of death, which is this long period that happens where the DoD sort of incrementally moves you through this pipeline to eventually get to what's what is, you know, often the holy grail, a program of record. And that that there's an there's an mismatch between how the venture capital community works, which is startup founders are thinking, okay, I've raised capital, I have milestones I have to meet. I am going to have to go back to raise capital in, you know, 12, 15, 18 months. And often that timeline is insufficient to be able to sort of demonstrate those those next milestones. And so that's kind of one of those impedance mismatch answers. What's coming to the forefront now, particularly shown by this conflict in Russia and Ukraine, is there are areas where, you know, the startup community in the Silicon Valley kind of ethos, I'd say is like not the ideal fit. And that's sort of like the traditional large platforms like aircraft carriers, certain types of like planes or tanks, et cetera. And even there, there's plenty of nuance. Those should be software defined. I think a lot of the time it's it's in areas where smaller, you know, drones or cybersecurity applications or other types of, you know, engineering tools that help develop capabilities faster are ones that need to be kind of, you know, adopted much more rapidly. So I want to talk about the other bit that you mentioned, the risk tolerance bit, because I think Congress and the DOD sort of have two different risk problems, right? So Congress basically doesn't get rewarded for almost anything it does in terms of defense. And so even if they were like, we saved 50 gajillion dollars because we switched from pencils to iPads, most of the time that doesn't help them win elections. So it's not something they have a particular interest in beyond like civic duty, all that good stuff besides good governance. And the military, on the other hand, has the issue of their overseers in Congress want to make sure there's zero waste, no possible way that any tax dollar spent could then be used as a cudgel against them when they're voting. And, you know, on top of that, the military is a bureaucracy for good reason, right? It's like the largest employer in like the world. It spends its budget is massive. It has to follow all these rules. How do you think about the two tiers of risk between the two players? And then how do you think about ways in which those systems could change to better incentivize technological adoption or at least technological risk taking? You know, going, going on a, a small kind of tangent just that I noticed when I was serving uh, on the Hill, I think in terms of the congressional risk profile, yeah. So one of them is is like, I think a particularly terrifying macro trend, which is just the ever increasing coupling between elected officials and sort of the constituents that they that they represent, which in which in theory is like that's exactly how it's supposed to be. But with the notion I saw of new members of Congress coming in, um, essentially getting in their seat and then starting to campaign, 
because the media cycle and just everything is kind of so, so tightly coupled. And so I think like the broad notion that there should be extreme accountability and transparency is a very good one. But I think if you're an elected official, you've had more scrutiny and less risk-taking ability than perhaps you really ever have. And I think that's hitting at a time in our geopolitical world where like we would hope we would have folks that would take big risks because I think we have other sort of external threats um, that need to kind of be you know, be thought with. I think the second point um, and how it relates more to the kind of, kind of defense world, I think, is one that I saw, which is, you know, and this definitely kind of my a, a personal opinion, but I think I saw, you know, the sort of strange marriage of really thoughtful programmatic decisions that were being made by members of Congress. And then the inevitable parochial implications of having constituents and having districts that they represent. And this inevitably kind of pulls at the thread of the defense industrial base, which was created for a very specific purpose 60, 70 years ago, and sort of now has morphed over time, where the effect is that there's just a footprint of sort of these large prime contractors in almost every district in the country. And so when, if you're a, a small startup or a growing company and you're sort of going to explain to Congress like the capability that you have, you inevitably are at a disadvantage and you just can't leverage sort of the same influence that a massive company is that, you know, has for good reason, but has, you know, 50,000 workers distributed in, in many congressional districts that compose seven of the nine important members on the House Appropriations Committee. Just seeing those dynamics, I think, play out is is very interesting. I was shocked at how little understanding there was between Congress and the DOD in terms of what was actually being spent. I mean, you made a point, Grant, about waste, fraud, waste, abuse type, type stuff. If you were to ask a member of Congress who's on the Appropriations Committee you know, how much the, this is just a, a random example, but how much like the Air Force was spending on a certain program or had spent up until, you know, second quarter of the fiscal year type, they have, they, they have no idea. It's just like very, very difficult. And to get that answer takes, frankly, weeks. And sometimes it's kind of like unknown. So I think the biggest way in the starting, and there are some very, very smart people that have been working on kind of reform in this instance. And I think it is interestingly an area where it kind of comes full circle. It's a meta point, if you will, but modern technology can help just in, in being able to create a more transparent information flow and real-time flow between members of Congress who are supposed to conduct oversight over the department and officials in the DOD to say, hey, like here's X amount of money, here's $100 million to go allocate towards small autonomous maritime vehicles. How are you doing that? Like, let me see where that money is falling and like, let me see results that aren't just like, you know, come back in a year and tell me how that's going. Tell me in two months, like you allocated some, some money and like how, where, where exactly that's going. And it's kind of an example. So I think that would probably be the, the place that I would spend a lot of effort because I think only when you have that tight, rich communication channel, can you actually start to like understand the other ways in which you can kind of pull levers. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important point. And for a lot of our listeners who work inside the government, you recognize that government is mostly a really bad information engine. And we have to figure out how to change those information flows to get better results up and down the, the chain. 
But I want to key in on one point you made there, which was that we have all these international challenges that we're we're facing. And so that would make the Defense Department and Congress that should make them more interested in taking risks because we have, let's say, China on our heels with a lot of technology stuff. You have other looming threats, Russia, et cetera. But I mean, at least in, in the Russia instance, we learned that bad modernization is bad. Like you can throw a bunch of money at it and it doesn't always work quite as you intended. And, you know, we're still the world's largest military. We still got a really capable defense department. We have really great servicemen and women who are, you know, deployed, doing a great job. How do you make the case that defense innovation is going to take us from like world superpower to like 10x where we are now? Like, why even spend this money if we're already the best? I think it's a unique opportunity to marry defense innovation with a resurgence of allies in strategic partnerships in a way that is desperately needed right now. And what I mean by that is you have an, a swath of former you know, Soviet-reliant nations that have Soviet you know, military equipment that is aging, that have relied on that as their major form of deterrence, that now look out at the world and see what's going on with Russia and Ukraine and shifting tides in NATO and the way that the world broadly reacted towards that. That's kind of peeking their head out and saying, what's my arsenal for the next 10 to 20 years? And I think the same time you have, you know, I think probably the, the listeners here are probably aware with like this sort of broader policy by the Chinese Communist Party of sort of offering arms or, or dollars in some ways to um, a lot of developing and emerging nations, particularly you could talk about the examples of Africa and, and sort of debt entrapment strategies, um, also present in Central and South America. But with the sort of current economic struggles that China is sort of working its way through, there I think is a very rare moment in time for the US to be extremely proactive in exporting its defense innovation to allies and partners that desperately need it and sort of like cementing our position for the next decade or 20 years, where it gets very frustrating, I think is in an example that was brought to light recently is ITAR, which is like, uh, you know, a, basically a, a weapons control regulation that controls what US technology can be exported to foreign countries and, and what can't and what the process is. Just in this example of, of a very like bureaucratic system that kind of needs to be revisited. And the way that that's manifesting itself right now is like literally Silicon Valley companies that are trying to send over drones or other types of technology to Ukraine, having to go through this sort of very bureaucratic process that is slowing them down when there's a literal like war that's happening. The most specific example of that is like needing to get the ultimate end user's signature for an end user that's probably in a tank somewhere under enemy fire just like kind of needing to revisit those. And I think in general, the way that a lot of that, those regulations are written were for 20 or 30 years ago, when the idea of like, what technology is considered important and what's not, um, and what's now become sort of more ubiquitous has changed drastically. And so I think an area that I pay a lot of attention to now is sort of 
broadly the, the ITAR classification and an overclassification of information in general. But I think to wrap it up, Grant, it's interesting because I, I think it's more of like, how can we as the US get our, our technology in the hands of countries that, that desperately kind of need it and are looking right now to bring that on in a, in a way that's meaningful? Should the US have its own version of a Belt and Road Initiative? Like, is that the form that this should take? Or should it be more of a multilateral strategy? Like, I guess, in, as you sort of think about it, what is the right format here? I think the U.S. has always had a Belt and Road initiative. It's kind of part and parcel, I think. But but I think it's a lot of like what the, you know, it's one of the many hats that I think the the military wears a lot of the time. And and maybe contextualizing with a specific example, one that's that's close to home, but basically in Fifth Fleet, which is the sort of Navy command in um, broadly in in the Middle East region, there's been a huge emphasis on experimenting with AI and autonomy. A lot of this was done by someone who's near and dear to me, but uh, my former boss on the Hill, who's Vice Admiral Brad Cooper, who's the commander of Fifth Fleet, and sort of, I think, gets the power of emerging technology. And what's been really interesting in, in that instance is these are all multilateral exercises and demonstrations. It was the largest naval exercise in the region um, just this past year where they had, I think, upwards of 25 different nations participating in, in some way, shape, or form to showcase, in this case, what maritime you know, technology and innovation could do in the region. And it's been really powerful, again, in this instance, because from the U.S. perspective, as we have shifted our global focus away from the Middle East and towards the, you know, Indo-Pacific region, we need allies and partners to sort of carry additional burden that we had been, you know, facing. Like literally, we've we've shifted down from seven destroyers to only two, really, that are persistently active in the region. And so we're asking other countries, Qatar, Jordan, etc., to to carry some of the weight. Um, and the way that they can do that, at I use the term a lot, the speed of relevance is not by purchasing large legacy platforms that take years and, and tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. It's by rapidly adopting a lot of the emerging technology, in this case, smaller maritime drones that serve sort of a similar function. And so that I've been very inspired by, I think, seeing that happen. And I would like to see that happen, I think, more, more broadly and in more theaters and, and more applications. I want to shift gears a little bit. We've been talking a lot about Congress's relationship with the DOD, but I want to talk a little bit about like how Silicon Valley's relationship with with defense and the military has evolved over time. And it seemed to me like maybe a decade ago, there was a fair amount of enthusiasm. And then we kind of went through this period of Project Maven and pushed back against a number of programs um, that were underway at, a, at several big tech companies. And in reaction to that backlash and a lot of companies backed off, but maybe they didn't totally back off. And yet it was, it was a little less public, et cetera. Like, where do things stand now? Like, what would you say is the general temperature from what you can tell? And has Ukraine changed anything in the minds of tech workers? I always like to think back to sort of the origin story of, of Silicon Valley and how it was literally born out of technological advancement spurred on by DoD innovation, 
you know, in many ways, one of the first Silicon Valley, you know, companies that often gets referenced, Fairchild Semiconductor, came out of Bell Labs and and sort of spurred what is now this like modern, you know, Silicon Valley. I think investing in aerospace and defense has always been a thing. I mean, I think it's always been, for certain reasons, an attractive thing to do. One of those from an economic perspective, like often it's counter cyclical. It's like has some ability to uh, not be impacted by sort of large macroeconomic swings. It's one of the few areas of investment where literally the budget is you know published every year, and there's an attempt to publish it for the next you know two to three years looking forward. So you can forecast and you can look at areas where there are going to be more or less you know investments in the future. There's not many areas where that you know it doesn't happen for digital health or for, there's no like central you know, kind of authority that says like, here's what is going to happen. And I think another area that's always made it attractive, I think from a very theoretical venture perspective, a lot of times I think when you're investing in a company, you're often investing in the founding team or the founder. And there's a huge correlation, I believe in my mind, between what is generally speaking, the mission-driven nature of the founders that are attacking problems in this, what's now become kind of known more as American dynamism space, but in national security and defense, a very positive correlation between the type of folks that just relentlessly will not accept failure and are going to sort of go the distance. And so I think that's always made it, I think, you know, an attractive thing. I think what's changed sort of more recently, and I'm a big believer of, of this, I think we are starting to see a slow yet steady impact from circa 2012, 13, 14, where when DIUX was sort of initially ideated and created um, by you know the late now Ash Carter, it takes a long time for I think systemic change to happen in an organization like the DoD, and so I think it's taken eight years. But we're starting to see real impact culturally, educational impact with, I think, acquisition professionals, education on both sides, um, the venture community, I think, understanding how to work with and what it means. So I'm very optimistic about, I think, the changes that have happened. Some areas where I think are a little concerning is I do worry in some instances about people that are sort of coming into this space broadly that maybe don't have this sort of experience or understanding set. People, this happens in, in every industry. It, it just per, perhaps is happening sort of now where you have sort of tourists, I think, that are coming in and sort of testing the waters. And I think what would be a real travesty is if that high-level interest from folks, I think, frankly, we, we probably do want from the venture community sort of coming into this space, happening at the same time when the DoD isn't able to sort of transition and pick big winners that drive the venture outcomes that you know make people really excited to stay in this space. Um, I think if those two things happen, then we'll see kind of a big pullback. I think, frankly, folks will lose money that aren't super experienced there. And I think that would be a really bad kind of signal to both sides of this, uh, you know, two-sided, I guess, marketplace. We're almost out of time, but I would love to hear some of your thoughts and predictions about 
technological development in space. I know that that's an area that you've been focused on in recent years, and there's obviously been a lot of media attention around the space race vis-a-vis the various tech billionaires who are nudging it along in different forms. What should we be on the lookout for from your perspective? What's exciting? What's what's right around the corner for us? No, great question, Zoe. And yeah, something I'm I've always been very passionate about, but following, you know, very closely, sort of presently. I think um to the extent that that there is a, you know, next generation space race, I would say provocatively, intentionally, that it's already happening. And I think that's sort of the the nature of the future of of sort of geopolitical conflict that these are cold wars, but they look a little different than they have in the past. And and what I mean by that is sort of this slow coupling of industrial bases and now an attempt to sort of decouple an alarming, you know, awareness of the shortage of rare earth minerals. Different things like this, I think, are kind of playing out because all of that are the ingredients that are necessary to build sort of these these next generation aerospace and space, you know, vehicles and machines. So I think That'd be kind of my take on on the space race is like we're seeing the sort of earliest parts of it play out on this macro industrial level. And then it it particularly, I think, comes into play the good things about having this be led, you know, by this this community of uh, I guess, you know, private billionaires or or broadly by the commercial technology, is, is I think that they do have a different risk profile. They move faster and they can t- kind of test the waters. I'm concerned where that eventually needs to converge with regulation. And so it's always better, I think, to have a somewhat close coupling there to sort of develop with regulatory implications sort of closely following. And I think that's exactly how it's going to happen here. Areas where I'd say that are particularly you know, interesting, I think there's a lot of work being done on this broader industrial engineering space. From a technological implementation standpoint, a company like Hadrian, which their sole thesis is that we need to be able to manufacture space and aerospace-specific components at rapid pace and not have to rely on these sort of risky supply chains and and other things. I think another company that's attacking it from a different problem is a company like Upsmith. They're focused on the educational piece of sort of trades and the industrial you know base from being able to teach people the necessary skills to to do this complex engineering and then i think in terms of actual space and aerospace implications we're seeing uh, kind of the the next frontier is it's no longer just outer space broadly i think it's different portions of of space and so particularly there's going to be a lot more activity in low earth orbit um, both from a the sort of the next space economy, and so there's companies that are you know doing low Earth orbit manufacturing. Varda is an example of that, and I think Impulse Space is kind of a new company that a lot of former SpaceXers basically taking the vision of you know it's it's a solved problem now to go from Earth to to space. Now we need to go from you know a portion of space to sort of different you know portions of space. So I think we're going to see a lot of increasing activity in terms of being able to move around low earth orbit, you know, manipulate objects in low earth orbit, operate with them, observe them, transfer data to and from 
Um, and that's really, I think, kind of the next the next frontier. So when you described what it's like to be in a submarine, one of my first reactions was like, this kind of sounds like what it's probably like to be in a spaceship <laughs> and to be like traveling or like to be in the International Space Station or something like that. Like, A, am I correct in that? that connection and B do you think that you Cameron are particularly attracted to you know this sort of isolated exploring of the unknown etc like is there a common thread there or am I making this up no I love that and I cannot say with certainty yet I would love to go to space um and be able to to confidently tell you that you know whether it is similar or dissimilar from a submarine submarines can be like even more isolating um there are no windows on submarines. And so you never get the the like beautiful view of looking, you know, looking down on Earth, I think. They're just sort of deep, dark underwater. It kind of comes full circle to I think some of the things I shared at the very beginning. But, you know, I've always looked up to to my my grandpa, who was um quite literally an explorer. And so I think it's it's sort of in maybe genetic in a way to to try and find places to sort of, you know, push the boundaries and, and find the frontier and, and move it forward. And so that's, uh, yeah, that's how, that's how I like to think. I was having a conversation the other day with someone who had spoken recently to a very senior national security official in the Biden administration. And when asked what was the thing he thought about most that was unexpected was supply chains. So I think it's interesting to think about the space supply chain as, you know, the next frontier of the final frontier. So with that, let's turn to our final segment where we each talk about something that we're following either culturally or politically. Zoe, why don't you kick us off? Sure. So this week, like many people, I have been following the FTX meltdown and all of the twists and turns related to the potential acquisition by Binance and then the backing out of the potential acquisition. Um, but one piece of the story that some people that has been on my mind that but that some people might not be tracking is um, the impact that this is having on the effective altruism community. And a lot of the work that Sam Bingman Freed has done in that world. He's been a big sort of figure in the EA movement. And in the last year or so set up something called the FTX Future Fund, which was going to be a big um, philanthropic, philanthropic actor in that space. And recently, in the wake of this, you know, the, the sort of FTX crisis, the staff of the FTX Future Fund um, sort of resigned en masse and, and sort of posted an open letter about it on Twitter. And I think we have yet to see what the reverberations will look like in that larger community. Certainly, it existed and predated SBF. So I'm sure you know, will be resilient in lots of ways, but I'll just be curious to see, you know, what the, what the sort of follow on effects are there. But I have learned recently that allegedly, I think maybe this is sort of a rumor, allegedly Michael Lewis has been profiling SBF over the last year, couple of years or something like that, and has been following him. And, you know, it seems like he may be the featured person and, and character and Michael Lewis's next book. And so I can say now, right now, that I am extremely excited to read that book whenever it comes out and watch the movie and whatever other franchises uh, follow from there. That is a story I've, I have been and will continue to follow this week. Cameron, what have you been following this week? 
the thing that I'm following this week kind of particularly nuanced for some of the conversations we had, but in in the community I'm in uh, is an article that came out kind of earlier this week where the you know the top DoD acquisition official Bill Laplante sort of had some what I would say you know fiery comments regarding this this topic of DoD uh, innovation and particularly the the article title is um, Laplante pokes Silicon Valley tech bros calls for increased munitions production for Ukraine. It's an interesting article that that actually has kind of good points, and I think some of the the sentiment is very accurate. Part of it is this discussion we had earlier, where we were talking about how there are some certain areas of technology where it still is, you know, very industrial. It's like large platforms. It's producing, you know, munitions rapidly, and it's areas where that is generally not the you know perfect fit for some of the Silicon Valley you know, technology. But I think my my thoughts on it as I sort of ponder are, I think we need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And so I think we need to be able to, to do both of those really well um, in that you know, being provocative and potentially alienating some of the Silicon Valley community is, is doesn't serve uh, any any kind of real purpose there. So that's something that I have been, uh, have been following this week. This week, I want to highlight FIFA's incredibly foolish statement on the Qatar World Cup set to kick off on November 20th. I'll just read a few pertinent parts, which were reported by Sky. The letter, which was sent to World Cup teams, said, Please, let's now focus on the football. We know football does not live in a vacuum, and we are equally aware that there are many challenges and difficulties of a political nature all around the world. But please do not allow football to be dragged into every ideological and political battle that exists. The letter goes on to say that one of the great strengths of the world is indeed its very diversity, and if inclusion means anything, it means having respect for that diversity. No one people or culture or nation is better than any other. This, of course, is coming from one of the most corrupt international institutions in the world who have had a number of money laundering and bribery scandals hanging over them for years. The only reason Qatar even got this World Cup in the first place is outright bribery. Also, I agree that no people or culture is better than another. But you can split countries into ones that respect and value human rights and ones that don't. Qatar doesn't. And every team participating in the Cup and every diplomat attending the Games, and I'm looking at you, Secretary Blinken, should say so at every opportunity. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and follow Cameron at Cameron L. McCord. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by the tulip bulb growers of the Netherlands. Do you love investing in crypto but don't want to buy the dip? consider purchasing tulip bulbs, the original alternative currency. Act fast. This opportunity only comes around once every 400 years. 
And while you're perusing the over 3,000 unique varietals of tulips to take to the moon, join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.